You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. In this episode, I'm talking to Ian Ang, a professor of cultural studies at Western Sydney University. Ian is Chinese, but she was born in Indonesia and her parents migrated to the Netherlands when she was 12. Her research and publications have had very diverse themes. One was watching Dallas desperately seeking the audience. Yes, Dallas, I'm referring to, is the TV show. And then her book, On Not Speaking Chinese, unpacks issues of identity inspired by her own experience as part of the diaspora. After spending decades in the Netherlands, Inn then decided to migrate to Australia and now lives in Sydney. Her work deals broadly with patterns of cultural flow and exchange in our globalised world, focusing on issues including the politics of identity and difference and migration, ethnicity and multiculturalism in Australia and Asia. Thanks for joining us today, Ian. Yes, thank you. Now, you're a distinguished professor at the University of Western Sydney. How would you describe your area of research and why have you chosen this field? Oh, well, that's a difficult question. Uh, I am a professor of cultural studies, so that is my field, cultural studies, and that implies uh, a very broad uh, engagement with contemporary culture and society. And I've always been very interested in uh, what uh, are the changes in society at large, especially at the cultural level, so both in terms of the arts or the media, but also in terms of people's identities, people's uh, cultural attachments, uh, interests, and so forth. So um, it includes interests in uh, multiculturalism, in uh, the impact of migration, in uh, what it means to live in large cities, and increasingly that is you know, more than half of the population in the world lives in cities now, so we live in a very urban culture. Uh, which uh, by definition implies a huge diversity of cultures that, that are getting coming together in, uh, in any city. Uh, and I'm interested in, well, you know, the social processes that uh, uh, make people tick in a city like that, uh, how people uh, form communities or how people relate to also the broader world uh, in uh, ways that uh, really uh, makes the 21st century a very different kind of world than earlier periods in history. Wow, it is a very broad remit, so it must (laughs) be hard to narrow it down to specifically what you want to research. Um, What does Lunar New Year mean to you? Well, that's an interesting thing because... uh, uh, I have, of course, uh, myself a, a Chinese, ethnic Chinese background, but interestingly, uh, when I grew up, uh, my 
family and especially my mother actually was quite ambivalent about our Chinese origins uh, because we uh, lived in Indonesia, that's the country where I was born, and uh, being ethnic Chinese was quite difficult. Uh, I was born in the 1950s and uh, my parents uh, lived there and uh, they uh, felt very strongly that uh, Indonesia at that time uh, was a society which in which there was a lot of hostility against ethnic Chinese. Mm. So uh, for my mother, who actually grew up uh, partly in Shanghai, so she has a very strong connection with China, uh, that Chineseness when when uh, we lived in Indonesia was um, a very difficult part of our of our identity, and so she didn't want to emphasize that. So as a result, Lunar New Year was never something that we celebrated or something like that. Yes, it was probably a difficult time in Indonesia. I think my uncle <laughs> was there at that time and he also changed his last name from Lee to yeah. Luwin Kewas. So uh -huh. uh, did your parents do anything like that? Well, that's interesting because, uh, well, my surname is Ang, obviously, mm. but uh, uh, we left Indonesia in 1966, uh, and uh, the, the name change uh, policy actually only happened after that. So mm. we never changed our names, but uh, my uh, uncle, for example, who continued to live in Indonesia, did change his name. So... Uh, uh, that uh, meant that he was no longer Ang, but Angka. Mm. So you left Indonesia at the age of 12. This is your whole family to go to yeah. the Netherlands because obviously there's always been that connection with the Dutch. So I assume that's why your parents went to the Netherlands. Is that right? Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you went to school there? I went to school, so I was 12 when we went to the Netherlands. Uh, I actually was very, very sad to leave Indonesia because I, uh, despite the fact that uh, our Chinese identity was a source of difficulty for us, I actually loved the country and had good friends. Uh, so as a, as a well, young teenager, it, it was actually not at all a pleasant prospect to have to move to a faraway country uh, in a cold continent. <laughs> so uh, I was unhappy. Uh, but uh, we ended up uh, moving to the Netherlands and, of course, once you get there, uh, things change and, and, you know, I went to school there and, and, and really kind of studied there and, and made a lot of friends and, and things like that. So, um, yeah. So, uh, so, so did you, yeah. if you grew up in Indonesia and your parents weren't, were a bit ambivalent about uh, being <laughs> Chinese and yeah. carrying on Chinese traditions and, or, or yeah. teaching you the Chinese yeah. language, did you speak English or Bahasa Indonesian? I, we spoke Bahasa Indonesia. I did okay. anyway. Right? And so, my, par my parents, uh, they spoke Dutch together. Right. Uh, because that was, you know, the colonial language. And my mother uh, uh, spoke Chinese, mm. but my father didn't. So uh, it was never a language that was spoken in the family. So their common language was Dutch? 
Uh, well, once we went to the Netherlands, we spoke Dutch. But mm. uh, when we lived in Indonesia, it was Bahasa Indonesia. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So, mm. at what point did you learn English? Uh, I learned English at school. Uh, in the I, I I don't think we learned English really when I was at school in Indonesia. Maybe the last year or something. Mm. But uh, it it was mostly uh, at high school in the Netherlands. So you know, kind of the Dutch uh, education system is such that. Uh, Learning English and learning French and learning German was just normal. Everyone had yes. to l- learn that, right? So uh, that was a very nice uh, uh, kind of uh, part of of the Dutch education system. I think you know that multilingualism was, uh, mm. uh, you know, taken for granted. So I <laughs> think it's in it, it's such an interesting mishmash of cultures because you've got a Chinese family who's actually from Indonesia and all speaking Dutch with each other in the Netherlands (laughs) yeah okay so you study in the Netherlands and you're you're there until um you're an adult I mean you you you, you left when you were 37 what did you do in the Netherlands well when you after uh, you you know left school when I went to university uh at the University of Amsterdam and uh that was the early 1970s Mm. when I started there uh, and it was a very, uh, uh, you know, turbulent time. Uh, feminism, uh, students' movement, <laughs> a lot of political action, things like that. So I got a bit caught up in all that, mm. and uh, had, uh, I, you know, it it was a very interesting time because it was experimenting with who I was. Uh, uh, finding out about uh, all sorts of uh, cultures that uh, didn't know much about because we uh, it was actually when I became a student it was the first time that I really uh, had some very close Dutch friends for example that uh, did a lot of things together with mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, very exploratory, and uh, I, I did enjoy studying. Uh, so it was really also the time that I started being interested in more sociological issues, uh, contemporary cultural issues, issues of media. So uh, I I wrote, started writing for a film magazine. Uh, uh, worked with others on projects. Uh, when you go to uh, the Netherlands, do you have much of an Indonesian community around you or do you plunge straight headfirst into, you know, Dutch culture? Well, when we moved to the Netherlands, we went to a small town uh, to live in a small town because that was where my father had a job. Right. And we were the, about the only uh, Chinese Indonesian family in a town, so that meant that uh, you just ha- you were forced to make friendships with the Dutch people, <laughs> right? So uh, there was no such thing as having a Chinese or an Indonesian community around us. Mm. Uh, so yeah, and and that was at that time. I don't know. We we just we just took it as it was. And uh, my father was very uh, adamant that we had to assimilate in the culture that we have become part of. 
And it was important for him that we learned Dutch as quickly as possible and that we did well at school. That that was the most important thing for him. Mm. So, uh, so yeah. you, you, you finish your studies and you actually live in the Netherlands till the age of 37. So you lived there for a huge chunk of time. Yeah. What were the main things that you did in terms of your career um, during that period until you decided to leave the Netherlands? Uh, well, uh, I, so I, I studied, and uh, as I uh, described earlier, I, I became uh, uh, what, what I'm now. Uh, of course, that started there, uh, being interested in, in cultural studies. And at that time, I was especially interested in uh, popular culture. So uh, I was extremely interested in uh, the fact that, uh, for example, uh, um, there was a lot of uh, uh, junky television uh, that uh, intellectuals were very uh, disdainful about, and that I found that uh, that kind of uh, gap between what intellectual thinks and what uh, the ordinary people enjoy, uh, very interesting. So I uh, actually did a, a master's thesis on uh, Dallas, the TV soap opera, and yes. I was interested in understanding why it was so popular, despite the fact that all the critics were so uh, dismissive about it. And it was a show that was popular all around the world. Uh, so it actually really was, uh, on the one hand, uh, a kind of an example of American cultural imperialism. But on the other hand, uh, it also made a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, very uh, kind of, it was a show that a lot of people found pleasurable. So, uh, so the idea of, having pleasure in popular culture, I found that interesting to study. So that's what I uh, uh, actually uh, researched uh, in uh, in my uh, uh, master's thesis. Uh, not myself, uh, I did together with some other people as well, but uh, I myself was especially interested in this issue of how can you understand when something is popular? What does it mean to be mm. popular? Like it, it, these days you would think, why is it that Donald Trump could be so popular, right? And many of us don't understand it in, at one level. But on the other hand, to just say that you don't understand it is not sufficient. You actually really have to try and understand it. Otherwise, we can't really develop an effective way of dealing with it politically. So... At the age of 37, you decide to leave the Netherlands and come to Australia. Why? And had you have had any much connection to Australia before that? No, not really. But uh, what happened was uh, I did my study on Dallas and I wrote a book called Watching Dallas. That was my master's thesis. Yes. And that became extremely successful. In, Let uh, me just circle back on that because I uh -huh. have to say, I, and I know that the book isn't, about the television show Dallas per se, but I mm -hmm. I was obsessed with Dallas when I was ah, growing up. That's interesting. <laughs> Absolutely interesting. obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. So I am intrigued 
why you decided to write this book, it's, which is Watching Dallas, Desperately Seeking the Audience. What is the book about and why did you choose to write it? And then we'll move on to why you came to Australia. <laughs> well, I was interested because I was surrounded by people, including uh, like my sister and, and some other friends uh, who were, as with you, uh, obsessed, they were obsessed with Dallas. They yes. wanted to watch it. It was extremely popular. People had all sorts of uh, uh, events that they organized to be able to watch it together. Uh, so it was a whole phenomenon. And uh, I thought that that was an interesting cultural uh, situation that, that needed to be understood. And I then started watching it myself and, and enjoyed it as well. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so, yeah. And, and at that time, um, soap operas like that uh, were quite a new thing on Dutch television mm -hmm. and uh, you know people were kind of really worried about it because people felt that it was all American trash <laughs> uh, and but on the other hand uh, well you know the obsession was phenomenal uh, so I thought that that was really interesting and uh, I wrote a book about it and in the academic world uh, where uh, media studies was at that time a, a relatively new field, mm. people thought it was a very original take on uh, the issues. Uh, it took the, the popularity of a program like that seriously. Mm. So it didn't just dismiss it, but it tried to understand it. And uh, I did a lot of uh, interviews with people who were interested in it. Uh, I, uh, actually, I put a little ad in a women's magazine asking people to write to me wow. why they liked the show. And I got all these letters from people who were just like, you know, amazing kind of things people wow. were saying about what, what they thought about the show and how they felt about it, which characters they liked most and which storylines they were most interested in, things like that. So <laughs> it's just amazing. And uh, so anyway, the book was popular uh, popular itself. Uh, mm. and, and it actually, uh, to this day, I still get kind of uh, emails about it. And, and, you know, kind of it was recently translated in Korean. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that book opened a lot of doors for me mm -hmm. in the professional uh, context. It uh, obviously did a lot better than uh, when uh, I remember writing a paper on the psychosocial and cultural impact of Beverly Hills 90210 uh -huh. and no one's ever written me an email about that. <laughs> I think perhaps that you'd put a lot more effort into yours. Okay, yeah. so yeah, what happened then? Yeah, so anyway, uh, I was uh, uh, kind of invited to go to conferences and one of the invitations was from uh, the the festival of birth, mm. Western Australia, uh, and the, the, that festival, uh, which is more like a, a cultural and arts festival, uh, they wanted to have a special panel about soap operas, and uh, they uh, invited me to come. And I had some uh, friends uh, that I met at other conferences who worked at Murdoch University in, in Perth. And so they um, 
uh, also invited me and and so I, that was the first time I, I came to Australia uh, first to Perth and then uh, uh, because uh, when people when people invite you uh, to come uh, to Australia uh, people want to also piggyback so uh, some people in Melbourne then also invited me so I went to Perth and to Melbourne, uh, and I really, that was, when was this? This would have been in 1990, and uh, I was uh, at that time ready to move from uh, the Netherlands. I thought, Why? well, because like, you know, I wrote that book, and uh, it, of course I wrote it first in Dutch, but then uh, some lucky circum circumstance made it happen that it was translated into English and it was the English version that was uh, successful mm -hmm. and uh, well English is the international uh, language uh, for academic work and uh, you know I, I really wanted to work in an English speaking country. Mm. So why why were you ready to leave the Netherlands and specifically to come to Australia? I know that you've written before that it's much easier to be Asian in Australia than in Europe, which I found interesting. Why is that? Well, it's interesting. I, I wanted to leave the Netherlands because I wanted to work in an English-speaking country because uh, then you have a much more international a range of uh, networks and connections that you can engage with uh, and I uh, so Australia obviously was uh, an English-speaking country uh, not necessarily uh, kind of the most uh, uh, the, the the first choice, uh, although uh, you know, kind of, I could have gone to the US or to uh, the UK. Mm -hmm. But when I first came to Australia, that was in 1990, to Perth, I was just so. Uh, uh, pleasantly surprised really by the openness of the uh, intellectual culture but also the broader culture because this was in 1991 and uh, it was the time of uh, Paul Keating and uh, his interest in Australia's engagement with Asia and uh, well you know kind of like of course my Asian background was has always been with me, but uh, it was never really so much part of my uh, public uh, engagements. But uh, for some reason, uh, because uh, there is such a uh, discourse in Australia about the importance of Asia for this country, uh, it was uh, for me something kind of like, you know, as if something uh, opened up for me uh, that I could actually be Asian not just as a private thing, but uh, something that uh, could share publicly. Uh, and that, you know, that right. was an important moment in my life. And so you went into academia here uh -huh. first at uh, Murdoch University and then you came to live in Sydney and yeah. worked here. Now, mm -hmm. I want to talk about the um, the other book that you've written, uh, yeah. which is called On Not Speaking Chinese. Now, yeah. that's seems quite different to watching Dallas. <laughs> it was, it was, indeed. It was quite different. It was definitely uh, kind of a, a departure for, from uh, things that I had been interested in and doing uh, before. So for people but, who don't know, what is that book about? Yeah, 
Uh, well, it, it's uh, as as I said, uh, my uh, interest in in being Asian and the meaning of that uh, in uh, in the Australian context, or more broadly in in the context of living in a Western society, uh, uh, was certainly kind of uh, peaked when I. Uh, came to Australia mm. and uh, I was then once invited to go to a conference in Taiwan uh, from when I was still living in Perth mm -hmm. and uh, so you know Australia it, it's very interesting in Australia we sometimes think that we don't engage enough yet with Asia but compared with European countries there is a lot of engagement, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that included academic engagement. So the, the fact that I was invited to come to a conference in Taiwan was just like, you know, I could only have had that uh, being in Australia. Right. Yeah, And but I knew because that was the first time I went to a Chinese-speaking country. And I always had this hang-up that, uh, well, my mother spoke Chinese, but I never spoke Chinese. My mother didn't want to teach me Chinese. Uh, but here I was about to go to a Chinese-speaking country, and I became a bit anxious. And I thought, mm. oh, dear, uh, people will probably start speaking Chinese to me, and I would not understand them, and I could not speak with them. Yeah. And that was exactly what happened, mm. of course. So I went to Taiwan, uh, well, looking Chinese. So, you know, you were then uh, mistaken for someone who could speak Chinese. Mm. But, uh, so uh, I actually wrote something, an essay uh, about this autobiographical experience. Uh, uh, so that, what, that was on not speaking Chinese. So um, what does it mean to be not speaking Chinese if you look Chinese and are of Chinese background? And what does it mean? What does it mean? And I know that, you know, we should read the book, of course, and it's a, it's a much longer than a pithy explanation. But if you had to give one, what does it mean? Uh, well, of course, it means something uh, different for different people. But I think in a general sense, it means that, uh, well, we have a large Chinese diaspora. Mm. Uh, people of Chinese backgrounds have uh, moved around the world for centuries. And uh, the idea that as a result of that, uh, a lot of people who have Chinese ancestry cannot speak Chinese should actually be very normal. Yes. But uh, it's not, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's still seen as uh, a contradiction. Mm -hmm. So when you go to a Chinese speaking country, whether it's Taiwan or whether it's Hong Kong or China, uh, people expect you to be able to speak Chinese. And actually people in the West also often, I mean, that has changed in the last 10, 15 years, but uh, uh, kind of like a while ago, like mm. let's say two decades ago, uh, I had to explain to people why I don't speak Chinese. It was seen as odd. Mm. You know? <laughs> and uh, I was actually at that time much more um, uh, indignant about it. But, uh, you know, I think you can explain that 
theoretically and in terms of a, a, a kind of a, a, a critical reflection on on that condition mm. of the importance of migration for identity formation and in, including it, included in that is how you actually uh, uh, become uh, a hybrid subject, mm. right? So you're no longer kind of like an essential Chinese person. <laughs> so do you have yeah. a hybrid cultural experience in your everyday life in that how much of the Indonesian culture do you have in your everyday life? How much of Chinese culture? How much of Dutch culture? And how yeah. much of Australian culture do you have yeah. in, in your life and yeah, in, so in, in what you do? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when, when people ask me, what are you? What kind of identity do you have? I generally say I'm Chinese, Indonesian, Dutch, Australian. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> and uh, so just to uh, kind of mix things up a bit. Yes. And, uh, uh, well, uh, interestingly, because we always felt as a family that we were Chinese, mm. but from Indonesia. Yes. But in fact... Now that uh, I live in in a city, Sydney, where there are people of Chinese backgrounds from so many different places, yeah. and increasingly, of course, people from mainland China uh, who are becoming uh, very numerous now, mm-hmm. um, uh, people of uh, Chinese uh, people from Indonesia no longer feel very Chinese anymore because they feel you know the people from China are more Chinese than they are. Yes. So, you know, this this kind of, uh, yeah, how identity shifts uh, uh, depending on the context in which you operate. Yes, that, so, but what mm. in terms of, say, rituals or traditions mm-hmm. or food, mm-hmm. yeah. what, what elements of all of those cultures and countries do you adopt in your own life these days? Oh, that's interesting because I, like, uh, my mum was a very good cook, so uh, she taught me to uh, cook a lot of uh, nyonya food, like mm. Chinese Indonesian food. Yep. Uh, so I really enjoy that still. But uh, I also enjoy, well, you know, there are certain things of Dutch culture that I do enjoy. Like uh, I like the Dutch cheese, yeah. <laughs> for example. Yeah. And now that I live in Australia, I've been in Australia for 30 years now. So I, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, not so much food stuff, but I mean, of course, like, you know, you live in, in Sydney. So um, that means you can enjoy so many different kinds of cuisine. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I don't think that I can describe my identity as one thing or another thing. It's always a mixture of many different things. Yeah. And, and very fluid. So you've mentioned that, uh, you know, now that you live in Sydney and you have taken part in some of the Lunar Mm -hmm. New Year celebrations in in and around Chinatown and in the city, it's given you the opportunity to reconnect with some Chinese traditions that you said that you never really knew. Now, I'm interested Mm. to know what kind of traditions you did not know. (laughs) Well, I mean, interestingly, uh, some very simple traditions. Yes, like <laughs> such as such as well, uh, when we were in Indonesia, we never ate with chopsticks. You never ate <laughs> right. with chopsticks. So that, uh, no. Wow. So my my father was adamant that it was uh, much uh, uh, using a fork and spoon is much easier. Even though my mom, of course, she she grew up fine. 
monthly in, in Shanghai. So, so she was actually quite keen to eat with chopsticks. Yes. Basically, in, in the family, we never had that. So that's something that I had to learn later. <laughs> Other traditions that uh, I never knew about, because we never uh, celebrated Lunar New Year, so I also didn't know things like the, the red packages or, you know, that, that the Lunar New Year is really kind of a very, very uh, drawn-out celebration. You didn't have uh, red packets I, when you were growing up, is that what you're saying? No, no, absolutely wow. not, no. And I still don't quite know exactly what it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So in, in that sense, like, you know, and we're not very Chinese at all. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Yeah. All right, so now that you've had a chance to reconnect mm. with some of those traditions, what does, mm. you know, we've got the Year of the Pig uh, and so what does the year mm. of the pig, what are you most looking forward to with the year of the pig? Oh, God, don't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually still have to learn what the year of the pig will mean. I mean, I find it quite fascinating how, uh, it, you know, in Chinese culture, uh, there is this uh, enormous uh, emphasis on the meaning of particular a year, so I myself am a year of the horse, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so that's quite interesting. But every year that but there is a new year, uh, I find out about things related to uh, uh, that particular year. So, uh, the year of the pig, what does it mean? I don't know. Well, I guess <laughs> you're about kids. to find out, so uh, you're still reconnecting with yes, various elements of, of Chinese tradition. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So on yeah. that note, thank you so mm. much, Ian, for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Professor Ian Ang. Ian mentioned nonya food. Now, that's a very specific type of food from Southeast Asia. One of the interesting things about Ian's experience, and one of the reasons she wrote the book on not speaking Chinese, is the preconception that Chinese people probably speak Chinese and are from China. I mean, of course, many Chinese people are from China, but there are millions who are not, and many who have never set foot there. One group referred to as the straits-born Chinese, that's straits as in S-T-R-A-I-T-S, are the people who were born in Malaysia and Singapore, which is where I was born, and Indonesia, where Ian was born, and southern Thailand. There have been many waves of migration from China into this region, starting from the 10th century. And those who settled in what is now Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia have adopted many aspects of the culture there, and they've intermarried and eventually created the culture that is also known as the Peranakan Chinese. It can sometimes be referred to as the Baba Nonya culture, where Baba is the term for men and Nonya is the term for women. The language can also be very different, with the local language developing which incorporated elements of Malay peppered with some words in Hokkien. Of course, some people, like Ian's mother, retain their language skills in Mandarin or Cantonese, and some are taught at school, but others are not. So the Peranakan or Nonya or Straits Chinese cultures is a very unique one and it's a result of the melding of various cultures to create the richness and diversity of a new one. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo and you can connect with me at valeriekoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. -O. 
To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and to keep up to date with future episodes, go to newstories.net.au.